We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into the Rotowire NFL podcast brought to you by our friends over at WinBet and Dynasty Owner. I am your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. We got a lot to get to today. We got training camp right around the corner or having started in a couple places. We got some news that obviously uh, has shifted the, the landscape in, in the fantasy world uh, earlier this week. So we'll dive into that. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking about Cam Akers and the Rams backfield. We're also going to get into a little bit of a deep dive on the Bills later on in the show. And, and we're also going to get into some uh, cheap stacking options in, in best balls, specifically over on Underdog Mario, uh, working on getting an article out on that. But uh, before we lead things off, Mario, how are you doing on this fine Thursday? Fine. Um, you know, I'm in Wisconsin. I guess you're not. Uh, nope. But in Wisconsin, we care about the Bucks, and uh, they won the championship. I guess so. Uh, that, was, that was kind of interesting. Otherwise, uh, normal uh, first week of training camp blues. Otherwise, I guess. Yeah, I feel you there. Uh, you know, seeing the footage, seeing you know the Snapchats for, from the friends up in Wisconsin, it looked like a absolutely electric atmosphere in, in Milwaukee and at the Deer District and everything like that. So um, even though I'm no longer in Wisconsin, I, I was very, very happy uh, for everybody that, that the Bucks were able to, to pull it off and, and the Bucks and Six prophecy once told by Brandon Jennings uh, was indeed fulfilled, you know. So that, that, was, yeah. that was absolutely beautiful. I love that. Um, but let's go ahead. Let's kick things off, Mario. You know, the big elephant in the room, Cam Akers. Tears his Achilles, and that's obviously just a crushing blow. He's someone who had kind of elevated himself uh, in drafts into being a, a, a first-round guy, someone that you could pick inside the top 10 and people wouldn't really bat a lash at you uh, too much one way or the other, and now that's completely off the table. So I guess starting things off, how does this adjust the first round for you? Does anyone uh, move up? Is there any like obvious guy that, that's going to move up as a result and, and might be a, a bit of a landmine now that now that Acres is kind of out of the picture? Yeah, it'll be tough to know, and I guess it'll be a little different from site to site, whether there'll be like a running back who goes up or if it'll just move up the receiver 
numbers. I guess there's been some effective zero running back uh, propaganda published recently because people are taking the receivers higher and higher seemingly every day in like the underdog tournament drafts or uh, so I don't, I don't know if that just means that uh, instead of whatever Nick Chubb going into the top nine maybe it just means like Tyreek Hill is going to move into the top seven and Stefan Diggs is going to start going nine and ten more often something like that uh, both of those are reasonable outcomes I'm, I'm not even really on one of those sides or the other. So um, I, I guess it would be that category of like Nick Chubb, Joe Mixon, Antonio Gibson, if it were a running back moving up. And I had Gibson especially already kind of ranked right next to Akers. So uh, that one, I, I was kind of already practicing a little bit. But usually you could get Mixon a little bit more into the mid-second round, or at least a lot of the time you can't, could. So maybe he'll start going more around where Akers used to or something like that. Okay, all right, that, that definitely checks out. And then as we look into this Rams backfield now, how high can we expect um, Darrell Henderson's ADP to climb? Is he going to start going where like your Mike Davis is and, and Miles Gaskins of the world go? Does it push even further? And, and you know, what, what's the point where you're jumping off on, uh, on Henderson and, and where are you trying to get him? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going well ahead of the Davis-Gaskin types. Uh, I think this this draft that I did yesterday, he actually went, I want to say, at the turn of the second, or maybe like the mid-second, which I would guess is about as high as you'll see him go. That struck me as a little aggressive. I thought he was yeah. justifiable as kind of like a late third rounder, at least because of the upside's there. It's not the kind of thing I would like do myself or recommend for other people, but if, if people want to take him in the late third I can't really argue with the logic of starting running back and one of the highest scoring offenses. There's, there's just not that much that can really go wrong with that. So yeah, I guess why not? But I am skeptical that he'll get more than like 80% of the snaps that acres would have got. He's just different kind of frame. He's not really built to take the volume that acres could have. So uh, it seems a little hasty to me to be putting Daryl Henderson ahead of guys like David Montgomery, Miles Sanders, even uh, like I'd, I'd put him after Josh Jacobs, who some has been going pretty regularly later than Mike Davis on underdog and is falling into like the early to mid sixth round, uh, which is insane to me. But yeah, I, I would probably prefer Jacobs, maybe Travis Etienne, but it's like right at that point that I would personally rank him and. Uh, I would imagine he's usually going to go by the fourth round, uh, barring a trade, which I actually expect the Rams to make at some point. Okay. I, I was wondering about that as well, because you look at the rest of that backfield depth that, that uh, the Rams have, and I, I don't hate it necessarily, but it, at the same time, it's all very much unproven guys. I mean, we, we got Xavier no Jones. Mass. What's that? There's no mass. There's there's Everybody's under 210. Everybody's under 210. 208. Okay, yeah. So they they need a, a thumper uh, of some sort. So who do you, who in your mind is like that that trade candidate um, that if the Rams decide to, to test that market? Because obviously free, the free agent market at this stage um, is very very much picked over. There's really not a lot in the way of appealing options in the in the running back market right now for free agency. Yeah, if they go with a free agent, I might even have have to raise Henderson in the rankings a little bit because the free agents are not threatening. It's like Duke Johnson's probably the best one and he's kind of redundant 
a little bit different skill set, but largely redundant to a guy like Henderson, a guy like Xavier Jones, who we might consider the favorite to back up Henderson otherwise. But uh, the people who are taking Henderson in the third and the fourth and the second, I guess, are going to really regret doing so if uh, instead of a harmless free agent, the Rams trade for I guess the worst case scenario for the Henderson investors would be someone like Ronald Jones, who uh, in any case, I would guess if they trade for a running back, it would be a guy who's on a one year deal. Because if you just trade for that player, use them a lot and have them have a good season in this offense that's supposed to score a lot of points, they can just walk in the next free. You can let them walk in the next free agency and it'll be a deferral of one year, but you might get a compensatory draft pick that's as high or even higher than the one that you trade to get the guy. So if they trade a fourth rounder for Ronald Jones and he runs for, you know, 1100 yards over five yards of carry, uh, Henderson probably does still something that pays off in like the seventh or eighth round or something like that. Certainly not the third or the fourth, but Jones would be only 25 next off season. And if he has, you know, a pro bowl, kind of season he might get paid you know eight plus million a year and get them a fourth round compensatory pick and they'll basically have just gotten kind of like a not exactly free but a rental where they just kind of like had to keep their hands off the draft pick for a year basically um so there's a way for them to spend somewhat aggressively and still not end up spending much uh, if they play it the right way but less than uh or cheaper than jones i guess i was thinking guys like royce freeman who I assume can be had for like a sixth at worst. And my personal favorite for them to trade for would actually be Jalen Samuels, but I have no idea whether, you know, anybody in particular is on their radar. They could be looking a totally different place for all I know. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. The, Samuels is someone who, who has kind of uh, drifted into the, into the background of the, of the fantasy landscape, it seems like, but um, intriguing tool set. Um, really good pass catcher, of course. You you can move him around. A, a very yeah, versatile player. He so. might be. He's probably limited as a runner, but in terms of actual passing down, passing functions as a running back, he's one of the best in the league. That's why he's on the. That's why Steelers didn't cut him last year. They were like, well, we can't really use him in the run game, but he seems too good as a pass catcher to cut. And this year, it seems. Well, I don't know if Canada, being the offensive coordinator, makes him more likely to stick around or whatever. But in any case, he's he's got that kind of just gliding sort of uh, running style that I think would fit well with the more zone-type schemes that, that McVeigh uses. And uh, Freeman, I, I don't know if he's good exactly, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he's capable of doing more than he did in Denver. So I think either one of them would be good enough for the Rams, and I think they would actually thrive in that role for the Rams, and they're both uh, 25, 26, so they might uh, sign for a fair amount of money in the next offseason if they have a good year. Uh, but yeah, somebody like that, and uh, I guess if you're talking crustier veterans, someone might name Melvin Gordon or Jordan Howard or something, but I don't think Gordon fits them that well aesthetically. I don't know if he would be worth their their trouble, really. Okay, interesting. And you know, Denver obviously just went ahead and, and got him last year, so who knows if they want to hang on to him for, for the remainder of his contract. Uh, that, that all remains to be seen. And then let's zoom back out. And when it comes to Cam Akers and his long-term dynasty value, uh, where are you with that? Because the the list of of running backs who have suffered this injury, um, not particularly extensive, but not a lot of uh, particularly encouraging names on that list either way. Um, So uh, when it comes to Akers in in the long view, um, where do you stand? It's pretty concerning. I don't know if there's a really solid case study, like a precedent for 
a player in Akers's particular position, but the the closest comps, I guess, would be Chris Wells and Michael Ashore, and both of those guys were pretty talented, in my opinion. And Deontay Foreman, I guess. Like I, I think all three of those guys were really talented runners, actually, but they still might not be quite like Acres. I don't, I don't really, I don't really consider Acres like a blue chip, but he, he might, he might have slightly better uh, recovery prospects than those guys. If only, like those guys were all bigger too. It's like maybe it's a little harder for a two thirty kind of back than a two fifteen, two twenty. I'm not really sure, but Chris Wells too, if I remember right, was like a little bit of. Not like a head case bad guy or anything, but I think I think he was kind of in that like Eddie Lacy genre where it was like uh, the coach has got to stay on him kind of player because he, he was really really talented otherwise. But uh, Acres is is in a position where he's you know the younger with an injury like this the better. Uh, it's 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 catastrophic either way, but at least he's 22 wherever he is and not you know older. And being less than 230, I hope makes him less susceptible to the effects of this than LaShore and, and, and Beanie Wells were. But you still, I think, got to lower him to something like, I don't know, the 50s and 60s or something like that in dynasty rankings, which is, of course, about 40 spots lower than he would have been if he, if he hadn't gotten hurt. And maybe that is an opportunity of some kind to buy low. I don't really want to recommend it though exactly i think it's it might be one of those things where it's like the, the acres in owners investors might just want to hold on to him i mean if someone gives you a you know a generous offer of course take it but maybe sure. maybe it'll be one of those cases where it's tough for either side to name a number that works for them yeah there's like you said there there's just not a ton of precedent to to work with here to really set that baseline expectation of, of what acres will look like on the other side of, the, of his recovery process from that uh, ruptured Achilles, of course. So um, that that is that makes him one of the more interesting uh, dynasty assets that there is out there. Um, before we get on to some of those best ball stacks, we got a word from some of our sponsors here. Starting off with our friends over at Dynasty Owner. Are you tired of the same old fancy football leagues that get canceled after a year or so? If so, Dynasty Owner has your back. Go to DynastyOwner.com. New leagues for the 2021 season are forming now. Dynasty Owner unites fun and excitement of fantasy football with the skill and strategy of the front office by incorporating a salary cap and real NFL player salaries for diehard fantasy football fans that want the real GM experience. Dynasty Owner adds a whole new level of strategy. Are you worried that you won't be able to find anyone to... Play in your league? Don't worry. Dynasty Owner can help you fill your league with fantasy football enthusiasts like yourself. You won't have to worry about finding enough players. You can choose and start a league, join an existing one, or purchasing a team from a previous owner. If you're serious about joining the big leagues, go to DynastyOwner.com and start your dynasty today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mario, uh, you are diving in right now on some p- prospective best ball stacks to target in uh, underdog over there obviously they have a ton of best ball going on every single day um, one team that you are, you are identifying right now is M- the Miami Dolphins so what, what's kind of your, your methodology on this one like what, what are you looking for in these stacks is it the fact that their ADPs are, are, are a little bit um, less cost prohibitive that, than other squads do you like the overall out, outlook of a certain offense uh, what's kind of your thought process on this yeah, the article that I'm going to post is going to try to go through the teams in question and, and kind of on a case-by-case basis lay out the, the approaches that, that might make sense for them because some offenses, I guess the most obvious illustration possible is the Chiefs, you know, Pat Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey. The value there is obvious. Uh, it's, it, you don't need to explain why you would go after all three of those guys. But in other offenses, you might only want to go after a pairing, like two receivers. Maybe the quarterback isn't productive enough to warrant going all in on a proper full stack. Um, but there are some cases where, you know, the quarterback makes sense with the, the pass catchers. And there's other cases where maybe the quarterback isn't good enough. You just go receiver, tight end, or two receivers, something like that. And this article will kind of clarify what what, what teams are worth what in, in what volumes. But... I think with the Dolphins, they're a case where it's like right on the borderline for me as to whether I want to get the quarterback too, because Tua Tungavailoa is affordable generally, but I wouldn't say that he's at like a discount price exactly. It's like usually you got to, if you want to get Tua in, in your Miami stack, if you're pursuing one, you have to make sure you actually get him. Like it's not going to be the kind of thing where you can just keep punting it until later in the draft. Like I'm, I'm kind of in the habit of just never taking a backup quarterback and then taking Cam Newton in the 17th round in every single draft, which uh, is too risky. I don't recommend other people do it, but it's, it's what I keep doing because even when I'm trying to get a player like Tua, it's like they go in the 13th or the 14th or something when I'm still thinking about getting my Paris Campbells and Christian Kirks or whatever. And I keep, I, I don't have the discipline to remember to actually take him because um, it's, it's, it doesn't strike me as an obvious value. But I think it's a justifiable price, even though I'm not drawn toward it, because Tua could run a little tiny bit. Like he could, he's he's the kind of guy who can, uh, at least those Ryan Tannehill like bootleg touchdowns in the red zone. Tua can do stuff like that. He can yeah. uh, escape the pocket a little bit. Um, but yeah, I generally want to get that rushing upside, and he's he's not really 
obvious enough for me to specifically target him. What I definitely like either way is the price of the Miami receivers, uh, especially uh, all three of rather, I guess, Will Fuller, Jalen Waddle, and Devontae Parker. I think Waddle and Parker are actually the best values because, I mean, Will Fuller, I, I think, is totally legitimate talent. I don't think he was like a you know fluke or whatever last year in Houston. No. I thought I thought Will Fuller last year is the Will Fuller he always could have been. But one game suspension, and of course he does have a durability history. So if fifteen game or sorry, sixteen games is at best what he's looking at, you worry about that getting chopped down to eleven or twelve uh, in a hurry there, and, and lessening the the value, uh, his theoretical value. Um, but Waddle, you know that I know that ankle injury was of course brutal, but at least he doesn't have the injury rap sheet that that Will Fuller does yet. Right, and, and, he, and he didn't like get back game, on the. F- and Waddle was able yeah. to get back on the field uh, a little bit at the very end of the season, which was crazy. Yeah, uh, they shouldn't have let him do that. But uh, no. I'm glad that he's doing great because uh, Waddle's insane. And uh, so I guess at least when you draft the way I do, which is rarely do I go zero running back. I, I usually take two running backs in the first three rounds because I just like my chances of getting some of those later receivers like a Paris Campbell, Christian Kirk, guys like that. I really like their chances of keeping up with the the guys five to six rounds ahead of them. So I can't I can't find the same case at running back. So I feel like I got to take the running backs early. And what I've liked to do lately is uh, get Jalen Waddle and, and Will Fuller or Jalen Waddle and Devonte Parker because you can do it in. You're going to probably have to do the eighth and the ninth, or rather the seventh and the eighth for Fuller and Waddle. Uh, but Parker sometimes falls just ridiculously far. I don't know what people are thinking. Uh, like he's going to have a better year than Michael Pittman, and they go something like three rounds, or sorry, two rounds apart, something like that. And uh, yeah, Parker was already on pace for like a 1,000-yard, four-touchdown season last year with everything going wrong. And now it's like he's – I don't know if he's going to get a double-teamed again, or if he does, Tua can definitely hit Will Fuller and Jalen Waddell all day deep so uh parker versus like number two corners and and with no safety over the top i think will definitely pay off as like a wide receiver four and uh with will fuller and waddle it there's definitely the case to make for paying that higher price for those two because in best ball you definitely want that big play ability that that ability to put up 30 points in a week even if you even if it's at the cost of consistency uh it's the format just kind of inherently insulates you from that and the, the pairing of, of Will Fuller and Jalen Waddle insulates you further because at that point, either Tua Tagovailoa does basically poorly in a game or one of those two does something. And for them, doing anything brings a pretty high probability of the big play, the long touchdown. So I'm drawn toward guys like Will Fuller and uh, and Jalen Waddle, especially on, on, on a underdog where you get the half-point PPR instead of the full. It's like a guy like... Jarvis Landry kind of loses some utility with that half point right. PPR shift. Yeah, I, I was actually on the on the radio yesterday down in Orlando, um, and they asked me who my who my favorite receiver from from the Dolphins is for this year. And I I actually leaned into Wolf Fuller. I just think that you know if if the durability is able to hold and he does play those sixteen games, obviously admitting that that he's going to be suspended for for week one, but. That explosive ability, um, his ability to to burn even number one corners, it, it's so impressive. He's on that one year prove it deal. Um, I think 
you know, if, as long as Tua makes the most of of his usage, then I think Fuller could easily be the end up being the best one of this Miami trio. But I also would not be surprised if Jalen Waddle just really hits the ground running and and is that guy right off the bat as well. Yeah, and it wouldn't be shocking. Uh, like Tua wouldn't even have to be especially good for each even of Will Fuller, Jalen Waddle, and, and Devontae Parker working at the current ADPs, and maybe even Gasicki if he's falling into like the eleventh round or something like that. Uh, that those pass catchers are legitimately loaded now. Like I don't know if there's a better and obviously better group of pass catchers in the league really so uh Tua doesn't have to be great uh but he might be good and in the event that he is all three of those receivers will have turned out to be underpriced uh, Gasicki is the one hang-up that I can't quite figure out because he's right. he's generally my fate of the group it's not because I think he's bad or anything and as a pass catcher he, he's you know pretty reliable actually but they seem to only have so many reps to give out and he doesn't seem to be eligible for the actual tight end ones those all go either waddle is not playing or gesticki is not playing or he's playing tight end and durham smith isn't playing so uh th- there's there's ways that gesicki could definitely hit and it's like if he gets enough snaps he will there's no doubt about that the question is how many snaps he gets and who who they're at the expense of so um but again th- th- i think there's a chance that as long as tua throws for something like and I do consider this totally possible, but something 4,600, 4,500 yards, something like that, then I think all those prices are just low enough that they can all fit. And when you're doing the kind of roster builds that I do specifically, where you're looking at two or three running backs going into the uh, seventh round, and you you only have like two receivers probably, getting a Will Fuller, Jalen Waddell as your wide receiver three and four, like that's at once playing it kind of risky and deep. But that is still locked into that that scenario of like if Tua is anything other than bad it'll work because they can kind of just do the handoff for the wide receiver three role and the format being what it is means the inconsistency doesn't matter absolutely yeah so that, that's a great way of, of drawing that up um let's bounce on over uh to another afc squad the tennessee titans so it feels like they have kind of a, a pretty stratified usage tree obviously you got aj brown and julio jones they're they're going to be eating up the bulk of the targets and we know that the kind of workhorse that derrick henry is as well so how are you approaching that this offense you know especially considering adp and how how do you go about the stack yeah it's an interesting case because i think the range of possibility is is pretty big like we assume they won't throw the ball very much, and that's the that's what the prices of AJ Brown, Julio Jones, Ryan Tannehill are based on that assumption. Yet, with a defense as bad as that as that one, and or at least if it's as bad as it was last year, again, they might not have the luxury of of not throwing much. And then that's not even to consider the possibility that they just want to throw more anyway after spending a second round pick for a. 33-year-old wide receiver at what's pretty clearly the closing of like their immediate Super Bowl sort of window, or at least Vrabel's job security. So mm-hmm. I think there's there's enough chance that the, the upper range of that range of outcomes hits, and I don't think the price is particularly tuned into that possibility. So I generally say it, it's a little risky. Well, it is risky, I guess, but if, especially if we're talking like the tournament, it's, it's a 
kind of a negligible risk, I would say. Uh, it's risky to target A.J. Brown and Julio Jones in an offense that you might project only you know, 34, 33 pass attempts per game. Mm-hmm. But, A, they can do so much more with each target that they get than any comparable receiver of their respective volume levels. And, B, if the volume does go more toward 36, 37 pass attempts per game, they can both just they could both go over 1400 yards or something like that. So um, it's, it's a not exactly likely scenario, but I think with Julio being in the early fourth, uh, AJ Brown's going to cost you a second, probably late second. Uh, That's, that's a lot to put in your draft for, for an offense that's as run heavy as the Titans. But if it's just slightly less run heavy than in the past, I think it could work. And I like, in the in the case of the Titans, the the comprehensive stack, not just of you know the Julio Jones AJ Brown pairing, but Tannehill, he, he'll go a little higher in some drafts than others, but I don't think he ever goes higher than the ninth round or something like that. And sometimes you can get him later, so uh, he has that rushing ability. It's not necessarily designed into the offense beyond those red zone bootleg touchdowns, but. Those are there. Those should keep yep. being there because teams are always going to have to watch the Derrick Henry dive first. And if, uh, you know, he at that price, Tannehill doesn't need to have a you know 4,800-yard passing season. He can give you just 4,500 and, you know, 300 rushing yards, and that would pay off. And in the event that A.J. Brown and, and Julio Jones are both on the field the whole time, the three of them should each be standout values at, at their respective prices. I even like to get Anthony Ferkser in like the 14th or 15th if I can. I'm not as urgently targeting him after the Julio trade, obviously, but I still think that there's a really good chance he's their third receiver in function this year. But uh, Josh, not to count out Josh Reynolds, who I actually like to get in the 18th if I do have one of, uh, I guess not so much A.J. Brown. I'm totally willing to have A.J. Brown by himself. But uh, if I get Julio, I kind of like to get Josh Reynolds in the 18th just because Julio is the greater injury concern between himself and AJ Brown. No, absolutely. So yeah, getting getting into that depth a little bit, especially as as late in drafts as the 18th round, is is a nice little way to round out your your best ball roster. And I, I do like Josh Reynolds a little bit as well. And we That's obviously know that. Yeah, and we know that Julio. A, a regular uh, on the injury report, even if he does end up playing the bulk of the time. Let's get on over. Let's talk some Carolina Panthers and, and, and stacking them. I've found myself getting more and more DJ more of late, which I'm pretty excited about. But, um, you know, obviously, if you don't draw the number one overall pick in, in your draft, you're probably not getting Christian McCaffrey. Uh, Robbie Anderson, uh, you know, goes a few rounds after DJ Moore. Uh, pretty intriguing as well. I do like his game a lot. Um, I think just in general, we, we talked about this earlier in the offseason, but I'm pretty excited about the prospects of uh, Sam Darnold potentially finally arriving this season after kind of a, a lost three seasons uh, with the Jets, kind of putting an impossible situation there. I think that uh, going down to Carolina, uh, linking up with Joe Brady, uh, I think that's only going to do good things for for him and, and the entirety of this Carolina offense from what, from what we saw a year ago. So, how are you approaching uh, this particular offense in best ball? Right, it might be a little aggressive to go for the full stack here. By that, I mean including Sam Darnold. Especially an underdog, where uh, he's he's very cheap. The the price is reasonable, I should say. It's just a question of 
Will Darnold be good enough as your second quarterback to justify, you know, including him in this stack? And, you know, you could just go with DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson. That's something that I like to do, actually, if I can arrange it. Uh, it's not always easy, but you can get DJ Moore in, like, the early mid-fourth, get Robbie Anderson, and probably go in, like, right around the same time as Will Fuller and DJ Chark. So it's those are the kinds of options you're usually looking at. Maybe Juju Smith-Schuster's around there. But DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson have clearly, this has already been demonstrated last year, but there's room for them to coexist. One success is not going to be at the expense of the others. And they both actually could increase their share of the passing game this year with Curtis Samuel gone. I think Terrace Marshall is a great prospect. And I think uh, the the Rams, or the, the Panthers basically uh, should, should send the Rams uh, you know, something nice, tasteful present for letting them have Terrace Marshall when... The Rams took two to Atwell, which is a completely wasted pick. Uh, they passed up a, a really – it's not aggressive to project Terrace Marshall as an eventual pro bowler. Um, the thing in the meantime, though, is that offense was built a particular way last year. Like, DJ Moore had the most difficult downfield routes. Robbie Anderson was something of a blend of uh, the slot, the underneath, the intermediate, and the downfield. And then Curtis Samuel was pretty much only the slot and pretty much only underneath – so they can sh- Joe Brady, I'm sure, c- is pragmatic enough and smart enough to reimagine things as as practically necessary. But if they keep the same structure, vaguely the same structure as last year, DJ Moore, I think, profiles clearly the best for a lot of those Curtis Samuel reps because he's pro- he's probably a better ball carrier in general than Curtis Samuel, even though they didn't use him that way last year. Curtis Samuel had a lot of carries. DJ Moore might be the best candidate to get those. Uh, um, and so I don't know if Terrace Marshall can really take – if it requires Terrace Marshall to be like Curtis Samuel to get on the field and, and, you know, take any of the share that DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson had last year, then it's not happening because he's a different kind of player. He's closer to kind of like a DJ Chark sort of receiver. Like he can play the slot, but he's he's more of a, you know, 10-plus yards downfield kind of guy. It's like you, you put right. him in the slot – because you want to get him on the the corner route against a safety or something, because he'll he'll burn them every time, but not because you want to give him a jet sweep or a screen pass. So uh, if Terrace Marshall can't take the Curtis Samuel share, though, then it seems like DJ Moore has to take some of those slot snaps, and those are easier targets. So his reception, his catch rate will go up. I don't know if his yards per target will go down because he's very good after the catch. He doesn't need the air yardage to keep that yardage on the field. And uh, Anderson. You just look at his peripherals, and it's it's real stable stuff. It's it's like you know that that kind of per snap usage that he was generating, and, and the efficiency that he did with that usage, if anything, merits more usage. So I, I really like to get a lot of DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson in the current market, and uh, at the very least in NFFC best ball, where they have the full point PPR, which which helps given the uncertainty of how many touchdowns Darnold's going to throw this year. But uh, in that in that thirty round NFFC type best ball or any any best ball out there that's more than twenty rounds, in that case I definitely really like the full Carolina stack because then a player like Darnold has more obviously usefulness. You have uh, you don't have to commit to him as a quarterback too. First of all, you probably want to get three quarterbacks in a format like that, and Darnold as your third quarterback with Moore and Anderson would be probably the best you could do for. Uh, a stack of of that kind of affordability in a, in a league that deep. 
Right, exactly. And and uh, circling back to, to Terrace Marshall, if there's a guy that, that knows how to how to use him properly, it would be Joe Brady. Joe Brady, of course, the offensive coordinator at LSU in 2019. Marshall would put up great per-game numbers that year. Obviously, was kind of the... Uh, the third wheel behind Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase, of course, but still um, really, really productive. And I, I thought he played well last year, even with kind of crummy circumstances oh, yeah. at LSU and Brady. He's even better beating. last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, even with that, you know, the the kind of in- uneven quarterback play that LSU had yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I love Terrace Marshall. I think that eventually he's going to be um, a, a huge contributor. I'm just not, I'm not totally sure about him for this year, but again, He's going at at a spot so, in drafts where it's not all that risky. Yeah, and the, the the way that it would be, in my opinion, the best case scenario here is if Terrace Marshall is the starter, but it's basically DJ Moore replacing Curtis Samuel because uh, Terrace Marshall outside, DJ Moore in the slot, Robbie Anderson outside, that could very quickly be maybe like one of the 10 most feared receiver rotations. But in the meantime, they might be using like, they might keep using DJ Moore in last year's role while having David Moore and Dan Arnold take the slot snaps that used to go to Samuel in a rotation with Terrace Marshall. I mean, so there's a few ways it could go, but man, if if they got, if they find a way to get Marshall and DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson on the field, then I, that would make me more at ease about Darnold's season because that's, that's a lot of tough covers right there. It is, and then I mean, what what are your thoughts on? Is there any concern about the volume for those guys because Christian McCaffrey is going to be back in, in the mix, and you know if he's playing, he's going to be drawing several targets per game as well. I think that's more a problem for the tight end position in the offense, and okay. Mike Davis was getting all those Christian McCaffrey checkdowns last year. Anyway, it's why people trick themselves into thinking that he's good, but uh, <laughs> they they're going to have I think the prior usage already accounted for and. Their defense, I think, will be better this year, but it shouldn't be so good that they turn into, uh, you know, the Titans on offense. I think they're going to have to, especially in that division, they're going to have to throw every week, even if the defense is a lot better this year. So uh, I I think Moore and Anderson, for their respective prices, are about as risk-free as it gets, honestly. Okay, interesting. And, yeah, it makes me feel a little bit better about the DJ Moore exposure that I've gotten thus far. And you briefly touched on uh, the tight ends and Dan Arnold. And, you know, Ian Thomas is someone that, that people have talked themselves into in the past and obviously hasn't really worked out just yet. But is there is that just a position that's not really going to be on the fantasy radar uh, this year, the Carolina tight end group? Well, if it is, it would have to be Dan Arnold because there is no function for the Ian Thomas tight end role but Dan Arnold would also basically not play tight end. He would play slot receiver. That's what he played for the Cardinals last year. And he was pretty effective in it because sometimes you get this six, six guy running against a five, nine nickel corner. And even if he can't get open, it doesn't matter because he just dunks on him. So I think that's what they have in mind. It's like they're, they are pretty content. I think to play the matchups between Dan Arnold I assume that might get more likely the closer to the end zone that they get. And then uh, David Moore, he was kind of doing the – he had something like a Curtis Samuel role in the Seahawks offense last year. I think he's actually a pretty good player. I mean, he's a a well-built athletic player. So um, I think they went into the draft having signed David Moore and Dan Arnold because they thought, like, we just need options, and those two give us options. I don't think they're committed to anything, or if they are – 
I, w- I guess it would have to be a split between those two guys. And even if it's as a halftime slot receiver, Dan Arnold still might be useful, especially in like two tight end kind of leagues, just because if he's if he's playing something that's basically receiver, then he doesn't need as many other tight ends. You know, it's like he's it might it might be kind of like Ricky Seals Jones's rookie year where he he would only play like 15 snaps a game, but he would get five targets. It's every time because uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're putting him on the field specifically to target him for some matchup reason, you know. So if if Darnold keeps that offense moving and they're getting into scoring range and it, particularly if they are scoring touchdowns, Dan Arnold might be like one of the people involved with that. So he might only need like 400 snaps to get you to something like I don't know what a fair expectation, like something like he might only need like 400 snaps to get to, you know, 400 yards and seven, six touchdowns, something like that, which is not exciting, I realize. But uh, if in, in best ball, uh, when you're talking, especially tight end three, if you're building a three tight end uh, team, like that kind of stuff can pay off. And, and his emphasis as like a red zone kind of guy, I think, makes him more useful in half point PPR than full point PPR. Okay. All right. So that that's a pretty thorough uh, look there at at the Carolina Panthers and how to approach stacking them. Uh, let's move on over. Let's do a bit of a deep dive on the Buffalo Bills. Uh, obviously, an, an offense that completely took off last season, and, and one of the biggest offseason wins you could have possibly had this year was being able to to keep uh, Brian Dable as the OC. I think both of us figured that he would be at the top of a lot of coaching searches um, as the head honcho, but obviously he's he's still in Buffalo. We got a, a good defense there on the, on the other side of things. Um, so just kind of starting things off, what are your expectations for this offense? But is there another level for, for there uh, to be reached when it, when it comes to the Bills? I don't think so. I think Josh Allen's season last year is – close to maxed out it wouldn't be shocking if that's the best season of his career but he can afford to regress and still be useful in fantasy it's not like he's outrageously expensive sometimes he goes later than both Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray uh, rarely does he go later than someone like Dak or so I would imagine but that's that's the range he goes in and I think it's a totally reasonable price uh, the Stefan Diggs pairing with Josh Allen doesn't need any explanation that's that's kind of like the Pat Mahomes instance where it's like the value here is super obvious. You don't need to strain to see it, but there might be a little more of an edge to, to get from, I think that the secondary pieces in that passing game. And I don't know what to make of the Cole Beasley thing. I mean, I'm not drafting him. I don't know how to advise people on, on something like that, but I, I don't know. I, at the very least am more, I'm enough more intrigued by Emmanuel Sanders that I don't really feel the need to spend much time on Cole Beasley because Sanders goes outrageously late. He goes the latest between himself, Cole Beasley, which is understandable, and uh, Gabriel Davis, and, and not just by not not just later than Davis, but I'm pretty sure by usually a few rounds or more. But I don't know that there's much reason to believe that Davis outproduces Sanders this year. I think Davis is a good prospect and he had a really good rookie year, but he's also a guy that they didn't. Pre- project into their plans to play a leading role they it took him thinking you know this is this is an underclassman prospect he's a little bit raw we know he has talent but we're we're just going to kind of you know bring him along and uh whatever happens happens but i don't think he's the kind of player that they're like we got to get gabriel davis going this year and you see some people kind of 
looking at his efficiency last year and thinking, oh, well, for a 21-year-old to do that, that must mean like he's going to be a star next year. And I think it means he's going to be a good starter maybe as soon as this year. But there was a lot of uh, dead air last year in, in Gabriel Davis's snaps. He would make like splash plays probably when the defense wasn't paying that much attention to him and then he would disappear for a long time. And that's, that's fine. Like he, he's still, he's on a clearly good trajectory, but um, he might get regression in the efficiency without much growth in the usage. And if that happens, he will be a bust at his current price. And then when I look at Emmanuel Sanders, especially it's like, oof. now it's pretty easy for me to imagine that happening because I know he's 34 and and. I don't know how he's still doing as well as he is, but Emmanuel Sanders was really good last year. Like he was, uh, I guess, not exactly consistent with the Saints in a, in a you know game by game basis. He wasn't putting up big points, but he was very consistent at getting open. Like for his depth of target of nine point one yards, uh, that was the thirty second percentile last year. But his one point three three air yards per snap was sixty second percentile. So that shows that at least if he's running shorter type routes, he's able to get open or at least last year he was he was catching the ball of course so it was all working out but for for davis to be on the field in like a three or four wide with stefan diggs opposite him and, and emmanuel sanders i assume sanders by the way would be their slot replacement if beasley retires or gets cut or whatever might mm-hmm. happen there and in that case sanders is just I don't know, he should probably be going in like the 10th round or something like that instead of the uh, whatever 14th, 15th that he does in the meantime. Um, but even if he's not the main slot receiver, I think he might just play ahead of Davis in three wide because he's, he doesn't need to be, or at least when they when they don't need a vertical element, Sanders might run ahead of him because if, if they need someone to just get open underneath for a viable target, it's clearly Sanders who's more polished in the meantime. It's like Davis is more the guy who uh, makes the defense pay when they forget about him. Uh, but when they're looking at him, I don't know if he's the guy who can get you to the get the chains to move. Okay, and if you know, look at it from from the other side. What is that that breakout case for for Gabriel Davis? Because I, I think that there is a pretty healthy uh, collective over on on Twitter and you know anywhere else that that you you know discuss fantasy football that. You know, a lot of people really do like Gabriel Davis as that breakout guy. So, what what kind of fuels that their thought process there? Yeah, there, there's plenty of reason to to think it could happen. It's just I think the key is to have the perspective that it could happen and not that it definitely will. There's a lot of yeah. this. There's a trendy kind of analysis now that has everything thinking in predetermined logic that like players of this, you know, anytime uh, something happened before with certain splits in mind means it's going to happen again. And that's how everything works. And uh, if, if you're a 21 year old receiver who has yards per target more than this and more yards, you always turn into whatever Stefan Diggs, And uh, that's, that's not true. Nothing works that way, but uh, he has a lot of encouraging indicators. Namely he's very young for how productive he was, not just last year, but especially at UCF. So he, he had big numbers there in a pretty competitive, pretty competent group of pass catchers, deep group of pass catchers, and he was clearly their top one the whole time he was there. So that's good. It's it's stuff like that you really want to see because it usually means they're a when, not if kind of prospect. Like a guy who takes a little longer to break out, you might 
that might be a player who's just getting by on their experience, their age advantage. But Davis was at an age disadvantage and still dominated at UCF. His athletic testing was just okay. Like he was a, he's a big receiver, so he didn't need to run that great. It's like Michael Thomas kind of shows, you can you can kind of have bad workout numbers if you're whatever six two two ten plus. Um, but the explosiveness was there in his numbers. Whatever his athletic testing meant, uh, it might not have meant much because Davis last year. You know, averaging 17 yards a catch. A lot of that was probably after. Well, I guess not much actually was after the catch. Um, but the thing is, he was not getting open consistently. Like he was kind of, he was nailing a lot of big shots, and yeah. they weren't asking him to make that many. So sometimes a guy like that, you know, they if if they just get better in the off season, then they can come back next season, take more shots, and keep making them at the same rate they did before. But sometimes if you increase their shot volume, the efficiency just falls off and the returns diminish and you don't even get any more than you did the prior year, even if the usage goes up with here uh, in in Davis's case, the reason I would say just consider him a possible breakout, like consider him the same sort of thing as like Mikul Hardman or something like that. Uh, People like to talk about how Mikul Hardman sucks now. Well, if they're not careful, they'll be saying Gabriel Davis sucks next year, even though he won't, even if he's somewhat disappointing this year, it's like a 22 year old having an off season would not be weird. Uh, even if they turn out to be very good, but last year, like this, this is the main problem I have with with assuming that it's going to happen. Um, he averaged 15 yards depth of target, so yeah. he's kind of a downfield specialist, and that's 90th percentile. And his air yards per snap was only 1.15, which is 47th percentile. So when you're generating that much air yardage per target, and your air yardage per snap is that low, that just means there's a lot of snaps where you're not getting a target. And part of that is definitely just because Stephon Diggs is that automatic and Cole Beasley too. Right. Um, it's totally possible that Davis just couldn't draw Like it was impossible to draw more targets than he did, but it's an unknown. We can't confirm it either way. And I think them signing Sanders showed that I'm sure they love Davis. It's not like a concern with Davis that they have. They just were, were probably thinking like there's a chance he's not quite ready. Let's, Let's account for that. Be prepared for it. Now, now they can't be hurt if Davis is not quite ready. Um, but there's a chance that he is. So I, I personally don't know how to make that call in the meantime. I think at the very least he needs to draw a lot more targets and maybe Cole Beasley leaving uh, w- would be the only condition that he needs to, to meet that. But it, it, there's there's a lot of uncertainty there. And it's it's totally possible that da- that Davis has a strong NFL career and still disappoints a lot of people this season just because he's he's so young and the stuff that they're looking at the sample that they're looking at from last year is full of unsustainable details. Right, I, I think you, you bring up a really good point when you look at, at the A dot versus the the air yards per snap because there is a bit of a gulf between the two of them. You, you, like you said, you look at that that fifteen yards A dot. Um, and then, st- but there's like a lot of empty snaps in the middle, and, and hence why his air yards per snap um, actually aren't that great. But I, I do think that like that there's, it, I wouldn't say floor in like the classical sense, but it, the sense that Buffalo has Josh Allen, so they're going to be compelled to you know, use his arm as best as they can, and maybe Davis is the best downfield option that they have, other other than Stephon Diggs. But you know, he they don't Probably. always send him. So I, I think that, you know, that that type of function and just like making the most of the threat that Josh Allen can pose a, as, a, as a deep ball passer, I think is going to keep keep Davis in the mix. So I, I like Davis, 
much more in best ball than, than I do in redraft for, for that type of reason because I think that week-to-week to consi- consistency, probably not going to be kind of his calling card, but I, I think his his splash weeks, which I do believe he will have, could, can really be you know difference makers where you know he slots in as, as your number two uh, scoring receiver in a given week. Yeah, I think – First of all, I think he's totally reasonable where people are taking him in drafts generally. It's not like I think he's a bust or something. It's not like a Pittman case to me. Um, it's it's just that there's there's a certain risk that people should be aware of. And if they are, then the upside is, of course, justified pretty easily. But I generally think that you're, you're right. He's going to get stuck with these, these deep passes and that can be fun. Uh, like if you're a wide receiver one and you're getting deep passes, that, that's often a recipe for some from really big plays, some long touchdowns. But if you're only running those routes, you are at risk of becoming a decoy. And there's a chance that Davis is like, he's not going to be a decoy in the sense that, you know, they're just never throwing to him. But I just mean, when you're running that far downfield, it's easy for the quarterback to find a reason to throw it to somebody else. And it yeah. won't have anything to do with how good Davis is. He could be doing his job perfectly. And his job, him doing his job great could just show up in the form of Emmanuel Sanders getting a 12-yard catch. And um, you don't get points for that as a Davis investor. So uh, if, if Sanders is running underneath and if Diggs is running everywhere, then they tend to win the majority of the targets in that case. And Davis will probably be very effective on those deep targets, but it's just a small share to be working with. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you got to be worried about, about what that volume ends up looking like for, for him. Um, explain this Buffalo backfield to us because, you know, it's got two guys that, that people have had varying levels of interest in over the over the last couple of years, Zach Moss and Devin Singletary. But, um, you know, the, the big, you know, wrench in, in all of it is is the fact that Josh Allen is such a touchdown vulture and, and a goal line threat um, as a runner. So, how are you approaching the, you know these two running backs who who both seem to have very capped ceilings just based on on what this offense looks like? Yeah, I could be wrong, but I think it's true to say that unless the Bills sort of restructure their offense, and Dable could do that if Dable kind of just switched things up every so often for the sake of switching it up, that wouldn't be shocking and I'm sure anything he thinks of he'll have a good idea of, of how to implement it. But it's hard to—it's hard for me anyway to imagine them changing the detail of Allen's function and like his the space that he he stands within on the field. It's like the way they build their formations. It's it's like Allen needs to kind of be the runner that he was last year because it's it's part of how they set up the defense. It's like the rush threat that Allen poses uh, toward the middle of the field. It's 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 something that creates a pressure downward which they exploit downfield with those those long-range passes that he does. And I don't know if you can get the defense leaning forward quite the same way if they're moving Allen a little bit up in, in, the, in the pocket and thus creating running room for, for Moss or, or Singletary on, on carries. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that I would need to see like formationally in the structure to imagine how Moss or Singletary could really do a whole lot. Because otherwise, if they're, they're setting things up like last year where Allen's like always in the shotgun – and they're kind of seeing what the defense does to determine what they want to do. There's there's too many ways for the, for Allen to conclude and for Dable to conclude. Like, yeah, let's let's run it up the middle. They're not 
they got wide splits on the defensive line. They're, they're linebackers off ball. They're not ready for the quick hit in the middle. And Allen is their their best way of doing that when they get that look. And they, or they'd have to they'd have to trade off something with the pass game structure to to put Moss in that quick hitting position instead. And I don't really see them making that trade. So I feel like Allen would need to get hurt for one of Moss or Singletary to provide any upside. And in the meantime, they have a ton of risk. Zach Moss, I, I think he's a really good runner. I think he's clearly like he's clearly better than Keyshawn Vaughn. I think he's about as good as Javante Williams this year. But he does have an injury history, even going back to Utah, he did, and that's uh, mm-hmm. that was his knee meniscus, not unrelated to the current ankle thing, which seems to be its own issue. Um, but the other the other guy is splitting carries too. It's like Singletary, pretty good. It's not. I don't think he's great, but he's not a bad enough player to just send to the bench full time. So they they have the smallest pie to start with, and then they still have to split it up, you know, fifty five forty five at best. So. I like Moss, but as, as a player, but I have no interest at all in uh, best ball or redraft unless he falls. Usually, something like twenty picks past his general ADP. Okay, all right, interesting because you know he's someone that I can get a little bit enamored with with the talent. I think he is, and, and you, you know you're looking at other running backs in that range. Maybe I'm a little bit lighter on running back at that particular stage, and I, I've I've found myself talking myself into Moss on a couple of different occasions, but. I probably don't need to. Well, if Allen does get hurt, then I love Moss. If if Allen's not taking that rushing share, Zach Moss can run, and and I don't know how much people grasp that. I don't know how much that matters to them with their current. AD. I can't tell if they're just saying like, oh, running a high scoring team. That, that's an understandable process, I guess. But the, the the structure doesn't really give him the runway as it, as it was last year. Uh, Allen is the main impediment to the the runway being Moss's. And if, if, if Allen's out, they got to totally change the, the, the structure of the offense. They would have to lean on Moss. And in the event that that unfortunate scenario occurs, I absolutely think he would answer the call. Like, he's, he's a hell of a runner. And I, I'm not really trying to bash Javante or anything, but these, these goldfish brains that can't watch that Miami highlights without just absolutely uh, having their world just – rearranged their their entire understanding of, of reality just built on the basis of that game just go watch some zach moss highlights at utah instead he breaks lots of t- tackles he does cool doosh, doosh, doosh stuff that you like so much uh go watch Z- zach moss highlights and find your new savior <laughs> yeah people really do yeah they, they uh they gravitate to that unc miami game and you know unc just i swear man these people they want Watch that game, and they, they get out their, their toy trucks, and they, they bash them together, and they go, yeah, bang, bang, bang. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I understand why. It's fun to do that. Um, I, 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 I'm not personally going to, though. Yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. And then uh, one last group to touch on with the Bills before we sign off. Anything to see here as far as these tight ends? They're obviously uh, going very cheap in, in drafts right now, but do you think that they're, they're someone that's going to have any sort of fantasy-relevant role? It's not an impressive room, I don't, I don't think. Right. I don't like Dawson Knox at all as a prospect, but the, the logic that someone might that might lead someone toward monetary or whatever of just, hey, they, they're playing in an offense that scores touchdowns. That's, that's enough for me. Uh, if you're using that kind of reasoning, I would sooner use it on Dawson Knox than those running backs because you can. It, it only takes the last round of the draft to to apply it. You know, you don't have to spend a tenth, eleventh round pick to, to 
to to uh, test that premise. It's just Dawson Knox in the 18th. Who cares? Pick probably sucks anyway. Uh, but at least he's a tight end where the bar is much lower than receiver. And if there is a guy who's kind of just ending up with touchdowns in that offense, I think Knox is a pretty good bet just because it's like, you know, it's, it's just easy to imagine a defense not covering him in the red zone. They have too many other things to worry about. No, absolutely. So that, that that's just, you know, something to, to keep in the back of your mind if you're attacking um, some late round tight ends. But I think that's going to wrap it up uh, for today's show. Uh, again, from Mario Puig, I'm John McKechnie. Thank you for listening to the Rotowire NFL podcast brought to you by our friends over at WinBet. And, of course, our friends over at Dynasty Owner as well. Uh, Tomorrow, next up on our docket, we'll have Andrew Laird and Scott Jenstad. Uh, They're generally going to be talking some DFS uh, on their shows, Um, so stay tuned for that. Of course, they'll probably be getting into some some strategy, some general stuff. Uh, I don't know if the the first uh, slate of games has been released from a DFS perspective just yet, but be sure to check that out as well. And again, thanks for listening to the Roadwire NFL Podcast, brought to you by WinBet and Dynasty Owner. Try Rotowire today, free for 10 days. Get our premium tools, rankings, analysis, and breaking news alerts. No credit card required. Go to rotowire.com forward slash try. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.